you'd like to turn to Ephesians 4, I think I need to pray. Lord, it is a great privilege and joy to worship you. Yes. And it was such an amazing worship. Um, it's such a miracle to know that Christ is in me. Uh, it's a miracle beyond miracles, and I thank you for it, Lord. Uh, Holy Spirit, you are very welcome here today, and I ask for your help, your manifesting in this place, Lord, and pray that you'd bless us, unite us, and bring us all together this morning. Amen. Okay. We're working through a series on the Holy Spirit. I thought it was useful just to put this up to show you where we've come from. Um, I think it's quite interesting that through the Bible, the Holy Spirit seems to be introduced through little revelations. Um, we learn a little bit about him at different points as we go through. Um, we see him at creation. He's the third part of the Trinity. There's promises through the Old Testament that he will pour out on us. There'll be the dry bones will come together. Jesus talked about him. He spoke to Nicodemus that you must be born of the Spirit. That's a new one. We found out we must be filled with the Spirit. He gives us gifts. We find he gives us fruit. He helps us in need. Source of revival. And he's adopted us. And he gives us that spirit of adoption. I think Paul, in writing Ephesians, although he probably already realized it, but he was bringing this new revelation that was coming to, to, to mind. That with the church now... Um, growing and establishing that the Spirit had a work in creating, building, uh, uniting and bringing together. So we're going to explore that today, the unity of the Spirit. So if, verse 1, I therefore, and we'll stop there. <laughs> Next point. This is cheesy, but this is how I've always been taught, and this is what I'm going to say. If you ever see a therefore, it's therefore a reason. <laughs> you never go beyond a therefore until you've looked back to see why the therefore is there. Um, Ephesians comes in two halves, one to three, four to six. We're starting on the cusp of the second half. And Paul, when he starts talking about I therefore... He's referring to everything he's been talking about in 1 to 3. It's our foundation. We are who we are in Christ. We're chosen, blameless, adopted, accepted, forgiven, predestined, and sealed. He goes on to talk about what the church is. It's a new mystery. The purpose of the church, Christ's body, his bride. And it's because of this foundation that he goes on to talk about the practical, the nitty-gritty. What does this mean on the basis of what we now know as our foundational principles? Let's read through Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. I like that picture. <laughs> that, that, that is Paul in prison in Rome. I didn't say it was an accurate picture, I just liked it. <laughs> I therefore, 
the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. So what's Paul's purpose in, uh, in writing this? He begins by saying, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord. Now, is he looking for sympathy here? <laughs> I'm locked up in, in, in Rome here, so give me an ear. Uh, I deserve it. Is, it. is he looking for pity? He doesn't say he's a prisoner of the Romans. <clears throat> he doesn't even say I'm a prisoner for the sake of the Lord. He says, I am a prisoner of the Lord. Uh, he's right, he is a prisoner. And I think he's making a, an interesting point here <laughs> that even though he is bound with physical chains, he is in fact a prisoner of the Lord. And it is because of what he's been speaking of in chapters 1 to 3 that we are now in Christ. For everything he says, we've been sealed, we've been forgiven. I am now a prisoner of Christ. I owe him. <laughs> I belong to him. And if that's true for Paul, it's true for us. I find it interesting in verse 3, the expression is uh, united in a, a bond of peace. <laughs> it almost sort of describes shackles. Uh, we're almost shackled together like prisoners. But it's not bonds of uh, evil, it's not bonds of war. They're bonds of peace. And we're all united because of what we've seen uh, in verses 1 to 3. Chapters 1 to 3, sorry. So, Paul, on the basis of what we know, now know, he calls us to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now, the word worthy in the Bible is sort of describes weights on a scale almost. It, so it kind of implies we need to walk feeling the weight <laughs> of what we are called to. There is a weight. And Paul, through the rest of Ephesians, sees um, God's plan. This is what he's done for us so far. He is seeing a future for the church to grow into this pure, spotless bride, this victorious warrior. And so he talks through three chapters, unity, purity, then victory. And ultimately, it's, it's, that's where he saw, that's his vision for Ephesians and for us. Interestingly, it starts with unity. So, keeping the unity of the Spirit. <coughs> Verse 3 says, we must be endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. Now, what exactly does that mean? I think we can pull three things out of this, but first, it's of the Spirit. It is a work yeah. of the Spirit. 
Now, at this point, I thought I would um, get everybody to just look around and just look at everybody else in the church. (coughs) Very good. Now, you have to admit, looking at some people, it's a miracle (laughs) that we are all here in the same building. Um, But seriously as well, um, there is something unique about being Christians in the family of God. And when I was writing this, the thought just came to me at the time when I was visiting this church in Nigeria. Uh, Literally thousands of Africans all around you. And one of the most meaningful things was just to look at a complete stranger in the face, eye to eye, spontaneously smile, and know... We have nothing in common, but we have everything in common, and that we are family. Um, That's the Holy Spirit. It's a miracle that we can do that. It's a miracle that that happens. And I would say that that is the default option for Christians. That is the basis of, that's what we should expect. I meet you for the first time as a Christian. We are unified. Next point. We don't do it. We can try. Uh, We can work very hard at being unified, but (laughs) it somehow always fails, doesn't it? We need the Holy Spirit. But we are actually called to keep the unity of the Spirit. We're called to maintain it. Not to make it, but to maintain uh, the unity of the Spirit. Good question. How on earth? (laughs) Next point. Paul says, with all lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, and bearing with one another in love. Um, Some of you may be thinking, well, that's easy. I can do that. Except for maybe that guy. Well, there is that one guy, but if it wasn't for him, it'd be fine. (laughs) I could do all that. Um, the thing with being a family is that you don't pick your family. (laughs) You might try, (laughs) but you may have to assume that God has actually put that guy there for a reason. And you need to face this point. Now, as I'm saying this, I don't know if you've got in your mind already a mental picture of someone or several people I think it would be very helpful for the, the, the rest of the sermon that you keep that mental image of that face right in front of you. And if you've got several, pick the most difficult <laughs> and stick with it. Because now we're going to go into the meaning of each of these points. I'm going to try and zip through, but it may take a bit longer than I planned. The easy one first... <laughs> Relatively easy. Humility. My definition is perhaps the ability to admit someone might actually know something better than you. (laughs) And because I get excited about the Greek, I've put it in. (laughs) I don't know this part of my medical training, but uh, for instance, you know, for instance, you've got friend fro in there from friend, frenos, meaning mind, brain. 
Not interesting. No. Uh, literally, it means low-minded, having a lower opinion of yourself, or not too high, the opposite of high-minded. Shall we read? If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Philippians 2, 3 to 8. First and foremost, Christ is our example. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I was quite interested that that came up <laughs> through the worship. Um, if we're no greater than our master, <laughs> Christ is our perfect example. It's a huge challenge to us to, uh, to try and follow uh, Christ's example, and it seems almost impossible. 1 Peter 5.5 5 makes it even worse. <laughs> Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It is a serious and, and sobering thought that your pride, um, however great or small you may measure it, can block uh, God's grace, can block the Holy Spirit's activity in yourself, in the, any person you're not forgiving. Um, pride is something we perhaps don't give enough attention to. In the fact that it can be so devastating uh, a sin. Okay, I better move on because <laughs> it's only going to get heavier. <laughs> Gentleness or meekness. And I've defined it is what you should still be <laughs> when you know you are right. <laughs> Praotes? I don't know how that breaks down, but it means even-tempered or passion under control. Uh, this is another one of the fruit of the Spirit. And one use of this word I like, uh, it's often used of taming horses. Uh, you give the image of a stallion that is tamed. Meekness isn't weakness. It is exceptional power, <laughs> like a stallion, under great control. Um, this is what we need. <laughs> 
we can be very passionate people um, and fly off the handle at the least provocation. The Holy Spirit is there and it is listed as fruit of the Spirit, self-control, gentleness. Uh, It's something we need to seek. Of all, well, the only time Jesus ever described himself was in Matthew uh, 11:29, and he said, "I am gentle and lowly in heart. I've come to me." Uh, again, it's just bringing to the point that Jesus is our ultimate uh, example. Okay. Worse and worse, long-suffering or patience. That's what you need when all attempts to reach someone have failed. You carry on. Macrothymia, big temper, <laughs> or long temper, or long fuse. Look up 2 Peter 3.9. I might be quicker if I just read that because it's very short. The Lord is long-suffering toward us, <clears throat> not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. <clears throat> this again seems very much one of God's characteristics, <laughs> not ours. God is long-tempered. Um, he seems to, well, we can't really appreciate how for centuries for millennia he has held back his wrath how his temper um, is so much longer (laughs) than we can appreciate Um, Peter uh, when speaking to Jesus about the issue of uh, forgiveness had a good go at trying to um, guess at what would be uh, a reasonable length of time for long-suffering or patience. If you'd like to look at Matthew 18, uh, 21 to 22, Jesus was talking about forgiving. And Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Um, I think Peter is trying to be a little bit clever. How many times should I forgive him? Seven times, the perfect number. Uh, It seems pretty reasonable to him to do it seven times. That's pretty good going. (laughs) Jesus turns to him and says, how about 70 times seven? And I don't think he meant uh, 490. I think it was a, a matter of uh, a principle that there's an expectation that we should be long-suffering, long-forgiving, just as God is. Okay. If you look at Matthew 18, 23 to, 20, to uh, 35, He goes through the parable, and we won't read it now, of the, uh, the unforgiving servant. 
which is all the more challenging. Uh, if you don't know the parable, then I would re- I'd read it later. In that parable, there was a mighty ruler who, through great grace, forgave his servant a humongous debt measuring into the millions. This servant was forgiven, but as soon as he left, he found a friend who owed him a few bob and shook him and demanded the money out of him. The parable finishes in a way that the the, the rich ruler was so displeased, he, he threw the unforgiving servant into jail. I said it would only get heavier. <laughs> the reason I bring that up, if you put up the next point, we may think it a supernatural task to be forgiving and to be long-suffering, but we need a heavenly, heavenly perspective. Where this man failed was that he failed to see how much grace had been poured out on him. If he had had realized who he was or what grace he had been given, his perspective of his other friend who owed him would have been so much more different. So this task, which seems so difficult, requires us also to... um, have a real understanding of who we are and where we are and what we've been forgiven. A little bit of light relief. I like the fact that in Romans it does say, as far as it depends on you, (laughs) live at peace with all men. It's not all on your shoulders. You are asked to try and endure. But as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Okay, we're nearly there. Bearing with one another in love. Okay, this one's the most difficult. Agape, which is God love. It's not our love. It's God love. And if you want a description, we'll turn to 1 Corinthians 13. Starting at verse 4. So the agape love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. We need God's love <laughs> in dealing with each other. Um, I think it's interesting that uh, it doesn't say uh, love. Well, love is not avoiding that person you've got in your mind's eye at the moment. <laughs> love is not uh, keeping your distance so that nothing bad happens. Love. Agape love is, throughout the Bible, an active, interactive 
doing word. <laughs> what would agape love mean for this person we've got in our minds at the moment? Agape love is not so much dependent on our feelings. It is rather a conscious effort to demonstrate the unconditional love of God, irrespective of feelings and irrespective of whether that person deserves it or not. Okay, are we suitably challenged? (laughs) Okay, all this is also a work of the Spirit, but we are called to... to, um, cultivate it, to look to this, to pray for this, to work into this, it is a huge amount of effort. Is it really worth it? Why is it so important? Well, the most important reason perhaps, if we, uh, sorry, I've got a lot of verses for you to keep on flicking around to, but John 17, it's up there so I can read it. Jesus, um, at this point, was well, imminently going to be uh, tortured, crucified and killed. His thoughts at the time were to pray for us here in this room. This prayer is for us, for you, sitting here right now. I do not pray for these, his disciples alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as your Father Uh, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory you gave me I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. This is so important to Jesus. If there's no other reason or motivation to get along with that person in your mind, it's because it's, it's that Jesus wants you to. He's prayed that you will. The purpose also is in our unity. The world's going to see it. It's unique. What I experienced in that church in Nigeria and when I meet any Christian is unique. There is something in that that is so important and Jesus knows that. Uh, The world will see, the world will know. If we carry on through Ephesians, there's almost like a complete reflection, a mirror image here in the the verses 4 to 6. Lots of ones, lots of God united together, the Trinity, one. And we also, one body, one spirit, we're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. There are seven ones there. But the, the mathematics are 1 plus 1 plus 1 plus 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 
one. Uh, this is what uh, Paul was getting at. We are to be a reflection of God. God is unity. I did a talk on this a while in a a discipleship group, that God has a number of different attributes, uh, you can call it characteristics, one of which is that God is unity, which means that he is love, he's goodness, he's kindness, he's all perfect things, all at once, every time, all the time, to all people, is Father, Son, and Spirit, always, all the time. There is no divisions. There's no pockets. There's no little clique (laughs) of attributes here and elsewhere. He is perfect in unity. We, likewise, are the body of Christ. God wants us to be one. If we are to be his sons and heirs, we need to reflect that unity. If we carry on, um, Jesus didn't finish his prayer there. It carried on. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory with which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the prayer of a bridegroom. Jesus' prayer began with wishing, praying, that they, we would all be one. And finishes by showing his desire to be with us in heaven. Um, in Revelation, we see an image of us prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Jesus desires that we should be one, not just that the world will see us, He desires it be one because he desires us. He wants a bride that is pure and whole. Okay. Right. So what will the church in the unity of the spirit actually look like? Talked about a lot of... uh, a lot of theology, a lot of excellent ideas. What is it actually like? Yep. Let's begin in Acts. <laughs> Acts four thirty-two to 33. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There's an immediate answer to Jesus' prayer. (laughs) I don't think it's coincidence that they were of one mind, one heart, one soul. 
great things were happening. The apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and thousands were being saved. Where else in Acts? Let's have a look. Acts 5. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So witnessing, power, wonders, miracles, people added, Is it a coincidence that in the same passage, in the same context, it is mentioned that they were unified, that they were a united church so close that they were almost as of one heart and one soul? Okay. How, why would that be? What, what is the reason why? Why does unity bring success? In 1 Corinthians, it talks of the body of Christ. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into the one spirit. I think the purpose of this, why I put this up, if you want a body that functions well, I'm going medical again, (laughs) you need every part to function. If, for instance, you'd hurt your ankle, you'll probably end up with a sore knee and hip as well, perhaps on the other side, because you've been using that too much. Um, In Corinthians, Paul makes the same point that you can't say, well, I don't need you. You're less important. It makes the point that every member is needed equally, uh, importantly. Um, You stub your toe, the rest of your body stops to caress that toe, hold it, rub it. A fully functioning body with all members in unity is the hands, the feet of Christ working in efficiency. We need to be uh, unified. We need to look for those who aren't. Anybody who's perhaps feeling outside? Um, I'm just a little toe. I won't be missed. You will be missed. You are needed. You still have a responsibility to make yourself a part of the body. Um, To seek out, (laughs) to ask for God's gifts of long-suffering, humility, (laughs) agape love. We need to be seeking and searching for each other and working to build ourselves together. I've come to the end rather quickly. 
So what are we to do? Is that person still in your mind's eye? (laughs) Um, Or persons? It's very easy for me to stand here and say, you must be humble. (laughs) You must love this person. Um, But I don't say that. The Bible does. Uh, Even now, if you can think of this person, what could you do practically to... Pray for them, meet with them, not ignore them. It is a heavy responsibility. Jesus desires it. Jesus wants it. Jesus loves us to be together. And if we're concerned for where this church goes and for becoming victorious, we need to be unified as an army. Uh, I'm going to ask if it's all right for the band to come up at this point. And I'm going to ask everybody to stand up as well. And I'm going to ask something which I always used to hate doing (laughs) in church. And that's because I always get very sweaty palms. (laughs) Is to ask everybody to hold hands. (laughs) This isn't magic. It's not that, you know, a bit of humility will rub off from one to the other. It's not (laughs) anything like that. But this is symbolic. We are unified as a church. We are one body. We hold hands to that effect. And I just want to pray now before we begin worshipping our lovely Jesus again. Lord Holy and Holy Spirit, We need you. (laughs) If no other point came clearer in what I said, it's we can't do it alone. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Christ, you're in us. We thank you for that. Holy Spirit, we ask for your grace. We ask for your power to unite us, to bind us together in those bonds of peace, which peace is described as almost like a weaving together of threads. Lord, we look for that and we ask that you'd work that through us and through the wider church. In your mighty name. Amen.